0: All right, and welcome back to a new episode of Table Topics. Hello! Is is there an echo in here? Uh, My name is Justin Brown, and I spend two hours removing two minutes of dead silence. To my right, as always, is my friend and yours. And I am Tom Lyles, mostly responsible for the dead silence. Uh, so we are going to start off uh, with the news. Um, not a lot of news this time around. Uh, I do want to say that um, Stockpile, a game that Tom and I really enjoy, uh, designed by Brett Sobel and Seth Van Orden, is being released in digital format by DigiDiced UG or DigiDiced Ug, as I like to call them. Um, Tom, you have put in quite a lot of time on uh, board game apps. You, I always see you in a game with your wife on uh, Potion Explosion, Uh, used to be Carcassonne. Um, How do you feel about this, Tom? We love Stockpile. I love Stockpile, but
1: I don't know if it's necessarily the most compelling choice for an app. Uh, The reason why we love Potion Explosion on the app so much is that that game is a real pain in the tuckus to set up. Carcassonne also uh, has some interesting features that make it a little bit better. I'm not sure how
0: Stockpile really brings more to the table in a digital form, but of course I'm going to check it out. Uh, yeah, I, I see what you mean. Carcassonne is certainly the kind of game where you take one action and you can just wait like an hour for somebody else to take theirs. It's a game you could play all day. Um, it's also
1: good for a computer to actually just show you, hey, this tile goes this these 20 places
0: right this this will turn into a farm possibly
1: um oh and- yeah the farm scoring yeah, digital farm scoring is a god said is a a a gift to be a guide yeah. uh, in other um and older stockpile news they are doing pretty much open play testing for the second expansion to uh stockpile uh, and if you go over to BoardGameGeek and send Brett Sobel a message, then he might let you in.
0: Oh, yeah, speaking of expansions, they have said that the expansions will be built into the game. Uh, no in that purchases. Um, Tom, you also had a uh, bit of news that you were uh, enlightening me on before so the... This is also old news uh,
1: that emerged as we were recording our last episode at the tail end of Gen Con. But Cheap Ass Games is being acquired by Greater Than Games. Greater Than Games is, of course, the game company that makes Spirit Island and somewhat less notably Laser Riders, uh, among other things. Cheap Ass Games is a company that's pretty near and dear to my heart. They make Dr. Lucky, they make Pears, they make Tack, among other things. So uh, I really hope that. Um, those games will continue to be published and prosper in this uh post acquiring world and I wish uh James and Carol and everybody else at uh Cheap Ass Games uh all the best after this. Although James is a pretty savvy guy and uh I don't I have a hard time thinking that they'd make this uh merger um if it weren't in their best interest.
0: Uh yeah, it's uh interesting because um cheap Ass just headed up a prolific Kickstarter for Trogdor, the game based on the Homestar Runner license, Um, over $1.4 million, which is uh, quite a lot for a property that I thought was dead um, from a company that's uh, kind of a niche in uh, the board gaming world. But this is the kind of the classic
1: cheap-ass games Kickstarter that we saw repeated in the past with TAC and other other games is that they take a pretty good game and then they attach it to a very uh, what am I looking for here a very like Nerd friendly license. Yes, and... nerd
0: friendly, but most importantly, cheap license. Uh, because yeah. you know, at at its height, Homestar Runner was very popular. That height was about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that Trogdor did as well as it did is honestly a shock and surprise to me. I didn't back it, but if uh, if I see it out in the wild, I, I would love to play it. Oh Anyway, that does it for the news we are going to dive into games we played uh the past week was congress of gamers a small local convention in the northern virginia area tyson's yep although tyson's. the other ones are held in maryland uh yes there are multiple congress of gamers we went to the one at the weston in uh, tyson's corner virginia um and we got uh quite a bit of gaming in there uh first time we played King Domino Spiel de as winner in 2017 uh, very simplistic game of you have a domino like pieces uh, two fields on each piece and you slot them onto your board to, uh, to score points um, the more matches you have the more points you score I, I think the most interesting dynamic is the way uh, board selection works because you always see what's coming out next and the board you select will determine your place in turn position. Uh, So, you know, as simplistic as the game is, 15 to 20 minutes, definitely designed more for a younger crowd. Uh, It it certainly offers a bit of strategy. You've been doing a deep
1: dive into SDJ winners, and as you mentioned, this was an SDJ winner recently. How does it stack up against the other ones that you've been taking a look at lately?
0: Uh, Honestly, it is probably the... Simplest of the SDJ games I've been looking at. Really simpler than Tortoise and Hare. Well, Tortoise and Hare is actually kind of mathy um, in the way it presents itself. Um, it's it's a much older design, of course. Um, nineteen seventy three was the original release. Uh, nineteen seventy nine or nineteen seventy eight Spiel winner, but anyway, King Domino. Out of all the out of Manhattan, uh, Scotland Yard, King Domino is probably the least interactive between players and the simplest of the Spiel de Jahres winners.
1: That's quite a motley crew that you just mentioned. Uh, Would you like to talk about why you have been collecting these these
0: old, somewhat obscure games? When I first got into board gaming uh, Spiel de Jahres was kind of um, tossed around like a badge of honor, much of the same way that uh, people in the United States look at the Academy Awards. Um, And yet very rarely have I ever encountered a Spiel de Jahres game of the wild, just because in our circles, we don't usually play them. Uh, we tend to aim for more conflict-heavy games, uh, more economic, um, you know, stock market economic manipulation kind of games. And Spiel de Jahres games are designed for the German audience, uh, the wide German audience, uh, which are more family-oriented. They are less cutthroat um, directly. Some of them are cutthroat indirectly. Uh, I will say that El Grande is a very mean game when it wants to be. Um but yeah, I, I wanted to explore what I was missing. Um I mean have you ever have you ever thought about going back and watching like uh every uh every Oscar um picture of the year winner or whatever? I don't I don't care about movies. No. Hey I, neither have I, I don't blame you. Uh <laughs> but um yeah, you know, at least with board gaming, these games are cheap and plentiful. Being a Spiel des Jahres nominee basically guarantees you will sell 50 to 100,000 copies. Um, so yeah, much much to my surprise, the most expensive game that I got was a copy of Rummy Cube made in Israel. And that's only because I sought out uh, a handmade very old game designed in a single factory in a single point of the world 50 years ago.
1: There are a few that we uh, enjoy quite a lot. Like, after all, uh, Azul was recently announced as SDJ winner 2018.
0: Yes, in fact, I would say that Azul is more in line with the old SDJ games compared- King Domino feels like the black sheep. Um, Azul can be incredibly cutthroat, as uh, as beautiful and simplistic as it appears on the surface.
1: And it, it feels like we've been playing Codenames for a lot longer. Than uh, this, but in 2016, Codenames was actually the SDJ winner.
0: That that actually, uh, you know, I've never thought about that. I've never thought about Code Names enough like that. But then again, I don't own a copy, and I don't look at the box when it gets plopped on the table. There are too many awards, frankly, for for it to stand out. Uh, I, I agree. Um, C- Code Names deserves those accolades, although I really hope to crypto uh, uh, finds its way into the hearts and minds of gamers. Yeah. Anyway, Tom, after uh, King Domino, uh, we played a game that you have been seeking out for a while called Santiago. Um, Could you explain uh, a little bit about Santiago, released in uh, 2003 by Claudia Heli and Roman Pellick? I would be happy to. Santiago
1: was on my list of games that I wanted to get, but were long out of print. So unfortunately, this is another one. Of those games that we're talking about that isn't widely available but if you do see a copy if you have the opportunity to play it or buy it we highly recommend it
0: hop, hop on it like finger snap hop on it
1: here's how it goes and just by way of a uh, preface if you are the kind of gamer that loves things like chinatown loves sidereal confluence uh games where there is a lot of negotiation and sort of like you're you're kind of trying to form like little blocks of value uh this is going to be the game for you the way that it works is there is a grid the grid represents various plantations on some kind of island uh the theming is that it's set in the island of santiago off of the coast of africa but as is the case with so many of these games, the theme really might as well just not even be there at all. There are different types of plantations, which, when they block together, uh, increase their value. And actually, like, multiple players can own different parts of the plantation, and they all get, like, full credit for owning a part of the plantation. So if, like, there's a massive, super valuable thing... And you own a part of it, then you get a portion of that. It's not like uh, majority rules, as it would be in like the farms in Carcassonne or or something like that. It would be like an analogy would be like in Chinatown, if there is a massive block of like laundromats, and one person owned three laundromats, and the other person owned another two laundromats. If they could somehow link them together to make like a lot more money and while still having their own individual interest in the component pieces of the overall like larger structure. Um, But here is the twist and this is where it gets really interesting. So on the island of Santiago the only thing that really matters is like irrigation. Plantations, the things that make you the money, score you points and win the game, are ultimately dependent on being irrigated and receiving water in order to avoid dying off. That's okay, though, because every round one, a person is going to irrigate a different part of the board. And they'll be, that part of the board will be irrigated for the rest of the game. If something is not irrigated, it won't die and like go away uh, right away, but it will sort of begin to dry out and become less valuable. However, what you can do is you can basically bribe the guy that's in charge of irrigating places to send the water your way. In fact, the tagline for the game is that the water flows where the
0: money goes. It's, it's, it's a great tagline. Um, <coughs> excuse me. In fact, it is, there, oh, there's only one irrigation ever, every turn. I believe there are 11 turns total. Um, <coughs> oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> I got a bug in my throat. Um, there's only... Uh, one irrigation per turn, 11 turns. Uh, the player who bid the least on the plantations will be the canal master. Um, and w- what will often happen is that players will grow in different directions. So- somebody is going to get left in the dust, literally. And I think the most the most surprising thing that Santiago brings to the table is its twist on area control. Uh, because as Tommy said you get a bonus, a synergy bonus for being adjacent to plantations of the same type. Uh, if somebody is already invested in that type, then you adding pieces to them is giving them points. It, it gives you points as well, but unless you can have a greater stake in that plantation than they do, they're going to eclipse you eventually. Uh, and it's, it's, it's rare that I see an area control game that, that, isn't also an area majority game this this one is people have to share the plantations while bribing the canal master to dry up their opponents the
1: um the theming on this game is bland and frankly the the box art and component quality is not great but the underlying game is so solid that it's really surprising to both of us that it hasn't seen a reprint in um well. Ever, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. It it takes the best elements of like uh, of uh, Chinatown's um, uh, set collection and uh, Castles of Mad King Ludwig's um, uh, master builder and puts them together in a game that just that just works so well. And I I was shocked and surprised every turn by how well the the auction system worked. Uh, I I feel like we were firing on all cylinders here. I, uh, auction games are very difficult to balance. Because when you start out, you have no idea what these tiles are worth. Uh, But every turn, new and emergent strategies would appear. And I would just stop and I'd just say, like, I think this might be my favorite game of the year (laughs) that I've played so far. My favorite new game. And then I had to do a quick mental uh, background check and said, wait, I technically played Gloomhaven, um, like, the day before Christmas last year. So, okay, yes, yes, Santiago, my favorite new game, new game to me. Of 2018. Uh, it's unfortunately out of print. Uh, a little expensive. You could probably get it for uh, 80 to $100. Look for an ugly green box. With yeah. a dodgy looking guy in a turban. And an oddly smug donkey. On the,
1: on the cover of it. it.
0: It does not surprise me. That the game went unloved. It does appall me. That it is not ranked higher than it is. Anyway Tom. We have to move on. Uh, to the Networks. Um, the Networks by Gilhova 2016 release it it is a tableau builder where everybody is trying to create a successful TV network Um, you will have uh, programs that you can slot into your network uh, attach actors and advertisements to get extra views victory points and money Um, it's it's on the on the surface. It's kind of like a nonsense game that's really carried by uh, a very vibrant theme. Uh, there's a little a little bit of strategy to um, to its action selection uh, mechanism. You'll you'll take cards. You'll draft cards from the table. I I wasn't I wasn't too hot on it. Um, I ended up enjoying it in the end. Uh, things kind of coalesce at the end. It's one of those games where at the beginning you don't really you don't really understand. The direction you're trying to go uh, but everybody at the table was having a great time do you do you agree yes yeah i was
1: impressed with it um it was a a blind buy for me at the auction store uh, several people started heckling me for getting to at first at uh, the uh, auction store but uh without knowing anything about it other than the fact that it had a cool box and was prominent on bgg's hot list a while back we were able to get it up and running in a crowded convention room, playing with several strangers. So it's a good game in that it's relatively straightforward, but still presents a lot of interesting decisions and uh, space for critical thinking and strategic thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it just ends up coming back down to... uh, why wouldn't I just play race for the galaxy? I, this, this is going to be endemic to all tableau builders. Uh, but I, I will say that it is absolutely criminal that terraforming Mars is like number four on the, uh, you know, BGG rankings and the networks is like number 500. I mean, it, it, well, you can be upset about that. But terraforming Mars isn't going anywhere. Yeah. I'm super upset, Tom. If, if if it was up to me, I'd start a campaign to push the networks far up there. It is a much better tableau builder than uh than anything in terraforming bars
1: there is a significant amount of like development going on with uh the networks it's coming off of a large expansion kickstarter and another small expansion that are both set to be released in the coming months uh the one that i am most excited about is uh themed around british television shows really excited about that yeah really looking forward well i'll I'll tell
0: you i'll tell you what tom if you tell me if there are any uh Graham Lynham references... The IT well, crowd is on the cover. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, on the cover of the, the expansion. The Networks has redeemed itself. It is yeah. the greatest game available. Uh, purchase it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I take back everything negative I said about it. In fact, I'm going to say something positive about it. Uh, Todd, the the problem with Tableau Builders, by and large, uh, with very few exceptions, is that they always ask you to dig through a pile of junk to find the cards that work for you. And the Networks says no no there will be seven actors available there will be six um advertisements available this is what is available make of it what you will uh see what your opponents are gunning for or just do what works for you well actually yeah that's a great point um because the networks
1: in a way that race for the galaxy and terraforming mars doesn't actually creates like a common market Mm -hmm. that you all kind of have to fight over instead of like having different actions that you're taking that that don't impact other players you are directly competing with them for cards and the problem that i have with terraforming mars is that i never seem to get the cards that i actually want to have or will be helpful for me while other people just kind of gleefully enjoy them or throw them away (laughs) or whatever causing no end of uh, frustration on my end but with um with the networks, if somebody takes the card that I wanted, well, I just wasn't quick enough, usually, to, to get to it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And then, also, uh, another thing to be said about the networks, the um, other expansion that I didn't mention before is called the Executives. I don't know why they called it that because it really is, seems to be kind of a misnomer. Really what, they do, what they're doing is they're taking the different types of television network and creating kind of like different rules for them. So you can have like a uh, public broadcasting corporation network and you don't actually sell ads to generate money or anything, but you can host like big telethon.
0: Okay, yeah, I, I cannot wait to sell people uh, crappy tea mugs for $50.
1: Or you can have a BBC-style government syndicate where, like, you get, like, a lot of money. You don't have to sell ads at all, but you have so much bureaucracy to deal with that you actually have to play on a rondelle of actions instead of uh, freely choosing what you want to do.
0: Okay, I I have come around instantly. Um, yeah, the, the networks... Uh, give it the table topics recommendation
1: like it's just very i mean very creative even it's definitely worth playing once just for the funny Mm -hmm. like it is actually like tom vassal says that if you're
0: not funny don't try to be this is a funny game yes yes agreed uh now moving on tom um i was not at congress of gamers on sunday you met up with a uh, couple of friends uh, did you guys uh, play anything interesting while I was away? We did. Uh, as it happens, we were celebrating my birthday, and these friends
1: brought a little present for me, which happened to be the Pandemic-themed, or I'm sorry, the Cthulhu-themed version of Pandemic. The reason why I got that wrong is that this is like a really stealthy, stripped-down version of the Arkham Horror that is like masquerading as a copy of pandemic
0: you you can't see it but i am rolling my eyes uh <laughs> Tom, can you uh enlighten, enlighten me well everything
1: that you don't like about arkham the fact that it
0: takes too long and that the board is way too big
1: and there's a zillion different rules for everything is just not present in mm. this all right there the the board is comprised of 20 different spaces it's smaller than a regular like pandemic board Okay. Um instead of having cubes of a bunch of different colors, there are just these little cultists. It's kind of the the components for them are kind of unfortunate because while you're given a cool-looking, cool-sized miniature for your uh for your dudes, the heroes that are trying to thwart the minions, the cultists, the cultists are very very small. Um, they come about knee high to a uh, to a hero, so there's just this really, really kind of like unfortunate. It's just just kind of so like funny. a
0: cultist of dwarves. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that you're just like you're going around to this like old Massachusetts like evil town, and you're just punting these like
0: little person cultists around. It's like thank you for being beast. politically correct. I we I strive to uh, not offend anyone. Um, <laughs> Tom, I. Are you doing the same thing in uh, uh, Pandemic Cthulhu as you are in, like, base Pandemic? So, you are. You're basically, you're trying to put enough cards of one
1: color in one person's hand, and you are trying to get them to a particular place so they can discard them. In Pandemic, you're trying to cure diseases by going to, like, a hospital. You research a disease and you cure it. This one, there are four different gates in Arkham where, like, monsters are going to kind of spew out of, and some are actually going to like try and crawl back into and like usher in the apocalypse. Sure. Which will happen if you're not careful. But uh, what you're trying to do is just get enough cards to that person's hand. That person goes to the gate, seals the gate. It's an interesting spin because like the gates also form, or form like a teleportation network. And getting around this board is actually like super hard compared to uh, base game Pandemic. It's kind of the same problem that we have when we were playing Pandemic Iberia remember that how hard it was to like get from one
0: part of spain to another because... uh yes yes in a world without airplanes uh it is very difficult to move about in fact all right tom uh the last game i want to talk about before before we get to the the new hotness uh was britannia uh britannia is an old avalon hill design from... we are
1: so sorry britannia
0: we we you are a better game than, than we deserve No, no, I feel like Britannia failed us. Um, Britannia, uh, originally designed in 1986 by uh, Louis Pulsifer, PhD. um, Reprinted in um, the mid-aughts by Fantasy Flight Games. Uh, This is a game that spans the entire millennia of British history, from the Roman invasion uh, to William the Conqueror. Um, Ostensibly, it is small world. But imagine Small World, where the game's turns dictate to you what units you will field, when units will decline, uh, and when your special powers activate. To put an example on it, like imagine a world in which
1: Small World had markings on its board said on round 3, the Amazons will appear in this particular place and they will have the ability to undertake these particular actions. only attack these people
0: and and score this way this way only and decline two rounds later to be replaced by the bivouacking beavers on round seven it's it's
1: uh the goal is pretty admirable because there is a lot of incentive to play in a somewhat historic manner like you do want to accomplish the goals that your historic counterpart would have been trying to accomplish in the real world when they were actually leading like the real Welshman or the real picks or whatever. The only problem is that history is actually just a terrible, terrible game. And the closer you get to emulating real history, more likely than
0: not, the more fun just seeps out of the game. Yeah, what what the game has in um uh, you know, abstract historical accuracy, it loses everything in uh in how robust it is. The, the game is just combat, and combat is no more complex than rolling a die per guy and hoping for a 5 or a 6. And the only choice that you
1: have is do you want to keep going or do you want to retreat? Yeah, it uh, it, there's, it really... there's no kind of maneuvering or tactics. There's no like you know. As much as I hate it, there isn't even like a a decision whether or not to play some kind of like dumb card that gives you a plus one to a roll or something like that. It,
0: admittedly, you know, it is it is a game that uh, would benefit from multiple playing because you know you you have to have some kind of foresight to know uh, when a faction is leaving or when they're going to be reinforced. Um, we played very aggressively in the beginning. And by round five of 16, an hour and a half to two hours... We made it through seven rounds. Oh, excuse yeah. me, excuse me. Round seven of 16, a little less than halfway through the game, about two hours, uh, we decided to call it quits um, because nobody was having fun. The thing is, is well, I was having fun. I was playing the Romans. And but then basic... the Romans died. The Romans went away.
1: Yeah, then it stopped being as much fun. The th- problem is that And again, this kind of goes back to the problem with creating a historically accurate representation is that the entire early game is dominated by one and only one faction. And it's not even close. They're just an order of magnitude better than anybody else. You can wipe entire factions, like entire nations off of the board in Britannia with the Romans and lose like one or two guys. And then the next turn you get to do it again and again and again and again. So three quarters of the table are basically just getting their butts kicked for an hour, literally an hour of doing nothing but losing. And then the Romans just go away. And it's not because you beat them. It's not because like the other three players got together and said, like you know, we will crush those perfidious Romans who are vomiting on our shores. I hate the Romans so much for what they're doing. They just leave. Which doesn't seem to have quite the emotional impact that no, no, uh, would lead to one wanting to continue playing the game not,
0: not yeah not in board game form it's uh it's not satisfying to play through. I will say though that um I thought about this game more than i uh would like to admit uh last night uh one of the players was just having a really bad time um you know, with the dice he wasn't he wasn't getting the numbers that he wanted to um but uh, Tom, people way smarter than us have discussed before about uh, dice probability and the psychology it has on board game board gamers um, and Lewis Pulsifer, he is a uh, a person who teaches board game design um, and he has discussed how over time, dice rolls will normalize between all players. And sure enough, Britannia is a game that I would say you probably roll the die 400, 500 times, hundreds of times in a single game. I'm sorry to say this of a PhD, but if he thinks that's an attractive quality of board game design, that he is a... Well, I'm not saying that, you know he thinks it's an attractive quality of board game design, but, you know, probability wise, the dice will normalize between all players when you're rolling them literally hundreds of times. But what does that a, mean? The, well, like, your well, so, average roll will po- approach 3.5 as time well, goes well, on? E- exactly, So What it means is that Britannia, as a game that is simulating a thousand years of history over 16 rounds with these multiple factions coming in and out, that the first three turns when the Romans kick butt When everything feels bad, they will leave or they will go and decline and another faction will will come in to have have their turn. And I experienced that halfway through the game as the Angles. The Angles ended up having more territory than the Romans did. And while scoring, you know, we just said, like, we quit, we're done, we're tired of playing this. And uh, while Tommy had more points than everybody else, had I held on to my territory for two turns, I probably would have eclipsed you. Yeah, you know, I was gonna get like forty points, uh, right then and there. It's my 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 point is my point isn't a defense of of boring game design, of boring outdated game design. It's that Britannia kind of put things into perspective how how one event in time can be the most important thing in the world, but in a couple hundred years, it's it's absolutely nothing. You know, it's. It's a ripple, a wave, back to a ripple again, and uh, I, I would be interested in seeing what the end game looks like, what like final game scoring looks like. I think, I think it would have been close. I, I mean, of course, it, you know, we'll have no way of knowing. I think you will never have any way of knowing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean, i call here right now. Or- <laughs> <clears throat> likely never going to play that game again no no not ever you know it goes up to five <laughs> does it it totally does oh, goodness i yeah. mean other another game to look at if anybody is interested in this sort of a game would be 878 which aside from having vastly more streamlined rules also happens to have uh ease better decision spaces if only because there is uh There are other things that can happen when you roll a die other than you kill a guy or you don't kill a guy.
0: And I think that 878 um, encapsulates what I'm trying to say here. It is also a game that uh, uh, creates drama through asymmetry. Um, In the outset, it appears like the British are just being overwhelmed by a wave of Vikings, uh, something that they just have no hope of dealing with. But as the invasion slows down, the um British mount a fighting defense, and then it feels like the um like the Vikings are on edge. Uh like there's a real there's a real ebb and flow to it that thankfully takes sixty to ninety minutes as opposed to five five hours. It also has excellent
1: team rules, so you know, you can share the page with a friend instead of just sitting back and walloping on your friends or being walloped by a cheaty face super op army that shouldn't even be around
0: anyway yeah yeah um yeah britannia not not great not great at all one of the very few games that we have decided to just stop playing outright uh, up there with caravellis and archipelago um caravellis by gil Dorsey or dora I, I don't i don't remember man we sold that game and never looked back yeah um Yeah, 878 Vikings, uh, or uh, uh, History of the World, or hell, even Small World, all of these games have far surpassed Britannia as anything more than um, a relic of the past. Uh, Anyway, Tom, before I move on to Root, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? We played uh, a game called Thebes,
1: which was described uh, by one of our friends as a light beer and pretzels game, which translated to us as a light to medium bureau, mm-hmm. where you it's a lot of fun your tomb robbing archaeologist back with that kind of a thing was acceptable uh going to the near east grabbing treasure out of a bag half of which is completely worthless and the ratio actually gets worse and worse as the game goes on but even when you're doing bad it feels good uh it's just it's a good game good light game
0: yeah, yeah, Thebes uh, is uh, one of those games that I would say is um, no less random than if we just were chucking dice, uh, but again, it kind of falls back into like the psychology of probability, because when you're reaching into that bag, you know you're going to pull out junk, which just makes getting that sweet, sweet treasure all the more better feeling. Yeah. Have you- have anything else to add about Thebes, Tom? No, no, I highly recommend it, but other than that, Yeah, unfortunately, it's out of print, so unless you uh, picked it up from Amazon's warehouse's uh, fire sale two years ago.
1: We should have a talk with Tom Vassell about how that rule that he has, that good games were made in print, or or come back in print eventually, really ain't working for
0: us. No, no it is not. Uh, (laughs) Maybe we just like shitty games. Yeah, maybe. Oh, Food Chain Magnate, get off my shelf! All right, Tom, anyway, I'm going to talk about the latest hotness that is dominating board game geek. Uh, Cole Worley and Patrick Leader's Root. Uh, Root, the game of woodland, might, and ripe. Right, uh, looks like something straight out of Redwall. A lot of forest critters fighting each other. Um, the caveat to this is that this is a game advertised as being completely asymmetric. Uh, this is kind of uh, Patrick Leader and letter leader i'm just gonna call him leader patrick leader and leader games is uh shtick um he designed uh, vast a few years ago this is a game where uh, each faction operates completely differently from the other ones um it got uh, uh rather tepid reviews um a good mix of positive and negative vast was tepid yes Yes, um, people praised the, uh, the style, uh, but criticized the fact that it was, it was probably too clever by half. Um, it's, the problem with asymm- asymmetry is that you have to communicate the goal of the game to the other players. Everybody needs to know from the outset what the objective is. But more to it than that, you have to know what the objective of each other player is. Uh, when we play, um, I don't know, Food Chain Magnate, I know we are trying to sell food. All of us are trying to sell food. But in Vast, the the warrior has to know what the goblins want. They have to know what the cave wants. They have to know what the dragon wants. All of this simultaneously. If you don't know what the other players want, the game falls apart. Well, the goblins probably want to do something violent. And the dragon probably wants to do something greedy. But what would a cave want to do? The cave wants to collapse itself in on all of them. Um, which is which is ah. another which is another challenge with asymmetric games if if every player can't interact meaningfully with all the other players again the game design just kind of falls apart i'm i'm tried to think of another example because there really aren't a lot of games like this but just just imagine playing a game where there's one player who kind of uh walks on the sidelines you can't interact with them you can't really do anything to them but they can do everything to you and it, it, Twilight Imperium. Okay, yeah. Well, all right. Twilight Imperium, but Twilight Imperium is still a game where um everybody can contribute. There are there are the weird races like the the Necrovirus that um don't participate directly in agendas, uh, but Tom and I have found that uh the Necrovirus and uh, the rider cards which you pull yourself out of the, an agenda from voting and you get a benefit if it passes your way, those tend to have more influence than the actual voting does. But, yeah, that is, that is the challenge with asymmetric games. The, so
1: The short version of that being, riders always fail. Writers or you should certainly plan on riders always failing. Yes,
0: yes, you should certainly plan on everybody voting against you, even if it results in them blowing up all their stuff. Uh, so Patrick Leader um, brought in Cole Worley, who uh, has a uh, conflict simul- simulation, geopolitical simulation background, making heavy games. Like uh, Pax Premier, John Company, which uh, uh, Heavy Cardboard has um, infamously said to us is a game that they would never teach, um, and an um, uh, in infamous traffic, uh, all games that are... The guys over at um, So Very Wrong are a pretty big fan of John Company, though.
1: Look, I think I see it over on your shelf. I,
0: I do have it on my shelf, uh, unplayed. Um, I've played a few games online, but... Yeah, it is a game that I I dread uh teaching. I I'll, I'll get into more of that later. I I've been putting together what I consider the litmus test for games that interest me in playing them again. Um you did a very good job teaching.
1: I root last night by the way. Thank
0: you, thank you. Yes, yeah. um Okay, so yes, Root is a um, ostensibly a conflict simulation game dressed up as uh, the cutest little woodland critters with swords and shields you've ever seen. Uh, there are four factions out of the box. Uh, the cats kind of serve as the stable faction. They want to build up their infrastructure. Uh, you have the Irie, the birds. Um, they, through an interesting card play of building up an engine, Um, they can basically steamroll through the forest. They want to move, punch, and fight. Excuse me. The Woodland Alliance uh, are kind of the underground rebel alliance. They're dropping sympathy across the board uh, to collect cards and eventually explode into warriors. Uh, And while they might not not look like much, they're actually the strongest fighters in the game. Uh, And then you have the Vagabond who exists on the fringe uh, he is sort of playing by his own rules, but he can assist the other factions in different ways. Uh, and while every faction plays completely differently, um, they're all trying to achieve the same goal, uh, get 30 points. Uh, and everybody has a different speed at which they do this. The As we have found out when we first played, the birds start out slow, but ramp up into an unstoppable force. Uh, the cats are slow and steady, but if left unchecked, each one of their buildings can basically score them four to five points. And the alliance starts off with nothing, nothing on the board. Um, but they, through harassing the other factions, uh, they can also ramp up in points very quickly if left unchecked. Um, and this is, for me, the greatest boon of the game was in in teaching it. Uh, I absolutely dread teaching john company or cuba libre or one of the other coin games because the the problem with ace symmetry tom is that you have to communicate what the objectives are if you can't clearly communicate that with the other players they're going to be scratching their heads like like what the hell are we doing man like why are we trying to accomplish this and there's only so many times i can say wait 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 we're almost at the good part. And um, I swear it, it'll start making sense soon. Exactly, exactly. And uh, you know, uh, when I when I tried to teach Pax Pamir, you might remember that from like two years ago, when I tried to teach at Infamous Traffic, you know, you said the exact same thing. You stopped, you're like, Brown, what the hell am I doing? And I'm like, Well, it's not gonna make sense until about ten minutes from now, but please bear with me. That that is never fun. Never. But um, you know, I think that, that route Succeeds in getting its message across uh despite the the relative complexity of things that are going on tom do you have you have anything to add about that anything to add to the fact that well um, just just the conversation in general I know that um by the end of the game uh you know you 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 entered a furrowed brow mode um yeah i just i just, I want to hear like your uncensored thoughts live on television it was. Hard to reconcile
1: all of the asymmetry among different players. I, felt, I, I feel somewhat pessimistic about this game in that the asymmetry is carried out over four different players all trying to do basically four different things that are similar but going about them differently. I'm not sure if these factions are actually balanced against each other in a way that's ultimately going to be uh, a satisfying experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, caveat, you know, we had one play... Uh, we had uh, one player who played like a monkey, basically. Y- y- yeah, yes, it's um, it's the classic dilemma of a game where, where everybody has to be playing their faction straight. Um, the cats, as the stable sort of government faction... Um, is necessary to keep the uh, other, the other, the birds the other like dominating faction in check. That never happened. Uh, there was a lot of pointless recruiting um, not enough fighting, not enough building well, Yeah, a lot of wasted
1: actions and unfortunately I kind of took advantage of that to make my make my own board position stronger I was playing the little woodland critters mm-hmm. and um in undermining the cats, I left a huge power vacuum open for the birds to come and poop on all of us.
0: Well, yes, and that's that's um, the dynamic of the game that uh, I think is the self-correcting nature of that game. Because the birds really have no other way of generating victory points. The fact that we let them build completely unchallenged, completely unchallenged, uh, is why they were able to just kind of steamroll um, towards the end, and and you you did like exceptional towards towards the end. We all said like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, this guy's gonna win in one turn. How do we reverse this? You went from last place with like ten points to second place with like twenty six points. I guess that's why I found
1: it to be kind of dissatisfying for me is that I felt like I pulled out like a pretty strong performance at the end, and that I did everything that my faction wants to do in order to win the game, about as well as I could have possibly done it, it just felt like the birds were like pretty unstoppable at that point. Having an inevitable result just doesn't feel super satisfying to me. That said though, it just... typically when when one faction in an asymmetric game gets out of control, it's usually the ones that have the kind of benefits that the bird faction in Route 10 to half, that there is a line of play that is made available to the player and that if you follow it, that you'll do relatively well. Now, I don't actually know if the cats actually have that too. The cats might have a line of play because our cats player was frankly so like ineffective.
0: Their their line of play is building, and he was in like he was in first place um, by mid game. Then he stopped building. Well, so Tom, my yeah my my three point litmus test for games that I find interesting like part one, uh, is it easy to get the objective of cross? Uh, I I feel that it succeeded there. Part two, Tom. Did you feel engaged by the way um, you were pursuing the objective? Uh, because there was at one point where you said, like quite giddily, as you cleared a field and plopped some warriors on the ground, "I like these guys." I do. I did. I really liked the faction
1: that I was playing. Um, they are they're sneaky and uh, they get to play. The game in a very unusual way compared to the the birds who are very procedural and the the cats who have a huge board presence to start with. Uh, you get to kind of like pick where you start and you get to tailor your strategy to what the state of the board is. So I enjoyed I enjoyed it a lot and I did feel like I was getting to make the decisions as to how um, how I wanted to go about trying to win the game. It's just that at the end I didn't feel like there was there, there just wasn't any way that I could win the game. I'm not sure when that tipping point was uh occurred, but I'm also relatively sure it wasn't directly due to anything that I did. It might like I might have contributed to it in that I attacked the opponents of the uh, player that ended up winning, but ultimately I guess I didn't do a good enough job because that didn't result in my winning either.
0: Well, I mean, I will also say that uh, early in the game, I handed the birds a card that they used to great effectiveness to to basically nuke half the board. Uh, oh, I, you
1: handed him that fox thing?
0: Hey, it was worth three points to be man. Yeah. but uh, you know, it's it's uh, again, it's part of that um, that dynamic. Like I noticed, you weren't taking credit for that when we were playing the game. Uh huh. Right. Um. So, Tom, part three of my litmus test is uh. uh whether or not you can see where you can do better, like how how could you improve in the game? It it, it doesn't seem like you felt like you had. I should have attacked the birds. Like okay. I was
1: attacking the cats because they were super weak and there was op- there were scoring opportunities for me to take advantage of. But in directing all or nearly all of my uh, operations at the beginning of the game, all I did was, was give the, the birds a a vacuum. If I had gone back and, like, contributed to killing a couple of their structures, and the cats had actually gone and contributed to building, killing a couple of their structures, that would have opened up at least another round or two of play in which for us to, to do something. But I was worried because my guys were so, or really, like, there are not a lot of them. There are extremely punitive consequences for getting wiped out. If I pissed off both of the big armies on the board, and they both decided to just kind of like little go want me for a turn or two, that's it. I'm done i got nothing
0: yeah um and i mean we we almost saw a wipe of the cats for the board as well the The keep went down and yeah, he was down to only a couple of units in like one clearing. Um yeah, yeah, Root is uh you know, if 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 I pull your arm hard enough, yeah, maybe if I maybe if I promise uh, through the ages here or there, like could I convince you, you to come to, back to you it? don't need
1: to promise <laughs> me through the ages. I don't do that to a
0: friend. But I mean I don't I didn't hate Root nearly as much as you hate through the ages. Uh, you know, I, I rag on Through the Ages a lot, but really, hey, if you cut out Age 3, then I'm down on Through the Ages anytime. time. You know, it's interesting that in the online
1: games that I play, Age 3 doesn't take more than, like, two or three minutes to play. You're lucky if you get, like, four turns in Age 3.
0: Well, yeah, because as it happens to be, two War of Cultures will go against me, and I'll be like, okay, um, where's the submit button?
1: Well, there's this weird thing that happens in, uh, like, Tabletop. Through the ages, where or when tabletop age three, where players start taking like one card, and the progression of like time just slows down to a to a snails pace. But in like the online and app versions, like it just still it flies through. If anything, it goes quicker, like because people get all those civil actions, and generally online the quality of the opponent is a little bit higher, and they understand uh, that often it's to your benefit to hasten the end of a game of through through the ages to keep someone from declaring a war Mm -hmm. once you hit that last turn there's no more wars so if like some it's possible to limit someone to only like one or two opportunities to declare war if they don't have it then they don't get it and even if they declare war both of those times then you're only looking at like a 50 point swing Mm -hmm. if you really really need the wars then usually 50 points isn't going to do it for you
0: yeah. Um, all right, Tom. So uh, there is uh, our take on uh, "Root." Um, I'd like to play it again. Um, I came away positive, like not not amazed. Uh, you know, the, it was missing a, a sort of a, what's the French word? "Joy de vivre." I'm not French, so you know, I can't help Je you. Je ne sais quoi. Uh, okay. Yes. Yes.
1: Um, I I, th- I think that it has some potential. I'm really I'm concerned about the asymmetricality because like unless it's very minor, it is really hard to balance them. Even like the best asymmetric war games like Twilight Struggle or yeah, Twilight Struggle have real problems with asymmetricality among factions.
0: Yeah, I I guess uh so okay, so this this will actually segue uh well into um the topic of the day uh hadn't really proposed one but i was thinking a a topic on self-regulating board games uh players self-regulating in board games tom is there anything you wanted to discuss before we uh we move on
1: no i don't think so other than i you know root is a very very cute game but i think you need a very specific loadout of players in order to be successful at it <laughs>
0: And I, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, take that as a segue into what I want to talk about here. Um, self-regulating, in-board games, players. Uh, Tom and I, uh, we enjoy Twilight Imperium 4th Edition, a game that can go on for uh, eight hours on a good day. Mari Nostrum Empires, um, a game uh, that uh, is, is very reminiscent of the classic Avalon Hill uh, civilization. Um, but it can end in 20 minutes. So, okay, so in Mario Empires, every single time we get it to the table, it is a game that can either run for hours or, yes, 20 minutes. It is a game that will, with new players, will likely end on turn two or three. Um, but it'll end in such a way that their their appetites are whetted. Like, they'll
1: lose, but they'll lose in a way of thinking, oh, okay, I, I think I get it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's, um, so Mario knows from Empires. Everybody is playing a, uh, a different faction around the Mediterranean. Uh, you have the Greeks, the Romans, uh, Egyptians, um... What's what's the other empire's Tom?
1: Uh, oh, there's the uh, I think they're called the Babylonians, mm-hmm. even though they're not Babylon is not really depicted on the yeah, map. And right. then there's the Atlanteans. Oh uh, yes, an, of course. The... They're an expansion race, but yeah. thinking of that as an
0: expansion is kind of a joke. Yeah the the, re- the reason I bring it up is because uh, much like Root, uh, there is a little asymmetry in um, Mario Nostrum empires, nowhere near as much as Root is, but. Uh, each each faction has their own unique hero uh, with a completely unique power uh, that changes the dynamic of the game. And we've had an argument with a friend before that Mari Nostrum Empires doesn't really communicate how you're supposed to play these factions very well, because they put Rome next to Greece. And they are both very punchy uh, fighters. Right. They put the two martial powers next to each other, and they put the two
1: cultural we want to build things and score points by building things instead of hitting people, Yes, factions, right next to each other. And then they put a big ocean
0: between the two uh-huh. of oh. them. Yep. Yeah, so if, you, um, if, if you're new to the game, um, as would happen when we first played it, as usually what happens when we introduce new people to the game, Rome and Greece start fighting each other. Mm-hmm. There's only so much land to go around, and really they should head across the sea to much greener pastures, and then what usually happens is Egypt or, uh, what is it, Babylon just win the game outright. Oh, you're thinking of Carthage. Ah, excuse me, yes. Carthage. Yes, Carthage or Egypt will win the game outright because they have the resources to just, just buy buy the game ending. Uh, if you build the pyramids, you're done. You win. And
1: and it's It's much easier for either of the southern Mediterranean powers to do it. I mean, really like what Greece and Rome want to do or to have like kind of a respectful distance and a Cold War mentality going on where, you know, they're both going to go loot and plunder the rich Asiatic African parts of the board and only come to blows with each other if it will prevent their opponent from winning the game that's really the only way or the only situation in which
0: those two people actually want to fight each other because otherwise they will both lose yeah and you said something interesting tom you said that mario Nostrum empires is a game that can end uh, relatively quickly kind of unsatisfyingly and yet everyone is ready to say, no, we're playing this again, damn it.
1: Well, I don't know how unsatisfying it is, actually, because, like, usually when somebody wins um, in 20 minutes, it's in a way that, like, nobody saw coming, and it is kind of impressive to see someone do something so difficult so quickly by just, by by force, by sheer, like, you know, initiative, just by gumption, just, you know, I, I've got it, I'm doing it, you know, and... If anybody saw it coming that I probably couldn't get away with it but none of you people think I'm going to win right now I'm going to prove you wrong.
0: Well, I say unsatisfying because when you mix um new and veteran players together in that game and you you kind of stress what to watch out for yeah. and it gets ignored and <laughs> somebody is well, ends- there's no good solution because like
1: if you put new players in Mari Nostrum in the martial powers, then they will immediately start fighting with the other people that they perceive as a threat. And the only when you have a weapon, the only people that you consider to be threatening to you are people with other weapons.
0: And and so that's why that's why I say the game can can sometimes end in an unsatisfying way because we certainly the last game we played, um, I I was in a situation where. If someone attacked you, it would make me the leader of all three tracks. There are there are cultural tracks in the game. Um one of, one of the two out of four or five victory conditions is right. if you are the the leader of all three tracks. Um Tommy was I was the leader of two, Tommy was the leader of one, and he was attacked for really no good reason by another player. It was a target of opportunity,
1: oh. but what it resulted in was me losing that leadership title to Justin,
0: who then would want to immediately win. In, ter- in turn, two or um, one—I forget. It was—it was very early, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I, every everybody just kind of like stared at their board. It was like, huh, uh, and and while I'm glad that ninety percent of the people we have introduced this game into have been like. Such great sports, have enjoyed it so much that they're like, no, we have to play this again. Some people tilt out. Some people, t- some people yeah, tilt some out. Some people tilt out bad. We, we had one game where um, we were playing it with uh, people much smarter than us, <laughs> people who, uh, who analyze board games much deeper than we do on this Rambly podcast. They completely shut me out. I was going for a pyramid build. I was perhaps too obvious about it. And they said... Nobody trade with Justin. He's going to get the pyramids. But in doing so, they overlooked that another player, also named Justin, but inferior Justin, um, (laughs) was one away from building the pyramids. And then he said he just laid his coins out in front of him and says, I built the pyramids. I win. Everybody at the table was dead silent. And then a couple of people got up and started to walk away. <laughs> and I said, okay, I guess we'll never play this game with this group again. But uh, n- no, go- Which is a shame. Yeah, you know, we, you, we, we haven't yeah. really
1: been able to get it to the table with that group. But
0: yeah, yeah, but... Maybe, um, maybe it's just too dumb of a
1: game for, for them to enjoy with us monkeys.
0: But I, I do agree with you, Tom, that overall, Mario Nostrum Empires uh, leaves me with uh, the positive feeling of wanting more. Um, by the time it ends, mm-hmm. past, past a certain threshold, I think that Mario Nostrum is a superb game for f- uh, five or six turns, and then it, it, it kind of unravels it, as it continues. It does. Um,
1: luckily, very few games of Mari Nostrum go the, the, further than five. The,
0: very, turns. yeah, very few. But uh, yeah. those first five turns, let me tell you, there, I have not had a, um, a more pleasurable experience in, you know, like a, a classic. Wargame scenario multiplayer wargame. I don't want any grognards out there to think that like I'm talking down on Hex encounters man But how does this game regulate itself? Well, or how do, do the players come to regulate the game? Well, going back to what we said about how Rome and Greece have to recognize that their greatest threats are across the sea, not each mm-hmm. other. Yeah. yeah, like the only time that Rome and Greece really want to fight each other is when they're getting those uh, legendary cities. One of the three of five victory conditions. But we really struggled to
1: communicate... The importance of that, and if you do it in-game, then it always comes off as Mm -hmm. self-serving. If I'm Rome and you're Greece and I'm saying, hey, look, we shouldn't attack each other because if we do that, then we're both going to lose the game. Mm -hmm. Often that statement is met with suspicion and... yes. It doesn't really go anywhere. it leads to like you know maybe a a
0: sort of like fortified border situation that doesn't ultimately solve the problem and and that's what I mean by self regulating um if you if you looked at mari Nostrum empires in a vacuum and I keep saying empires because this is actually- this' is like the pseudo successor. To a Mario Nostrum that came out um, in 2004-ish, but uh, if you looked at the same factions, same designer, same design. If you looked at the factions of Mario Nostrum empires in a vacuum, I can't really say that any of them are like are like balanced. You know, I can't like say that any of them are capable of handling the board by themselves. It's the kind of game that requires the players to play off of each other, know the the pitfalls equally, and when victory comes it's through either underhanded tactics which is always a plus for me in a board game uh or through excellent strategy which is again always a plus for me in a board game you have anything to uh add
1: on to that it feels like the cultural powers egypt and carthage are maybe just a touch too good but again that's probably because it's so difficult to convince anybody to go and like whoop their ass Mm -hmm. but it's that those problems are just like very very minor in comparison with other games that have this issue games such as twilight imperium 4
0: ah speaking of which uh tom um as much as i think twilight imperium 4 delivers on uh just it just like it just like touches me in that special way that makes me uh happy and angry and joyful and excited and agitated at the same time Twilight Imperium Four is a game that can quickly devolve into a lot of whining. Um, it's it's that. It's it, it's unfortunate also
1: that whining is usually a successful strategy. Oh, absolutely, if and really, I and
0: I will totally I will totally accept it as a successful strategy. But if you whine <laughs> strategically too, that
1: is much more forgivable than just sitting there and bitching for hours and hours and hours about how this game is terrible. If you're if you're whining to try and like actually throw your opponents off of your set or to like redirect it just because you think that maybe they'll they'll go someplace if you whine it that long enough, that's actually okay. That is a legit tactic in my book.
0: Yeah, yeah. Twilight Imperium, uh, fourth edition. Um, we have not played third or any of the previous editions. We can only speak about fourth here, but it is a game with very uh, I'll just say it nebulous balance issues. Uh, some, some races are clearly better than others at more things. Everybody kind of has their niche that they're really good at. Well, it's it's pro- especially problematic because Twilight
1: Imperium 4 is a game of scoring points rather than of holding territory or something like that. And unfortunately, some races are just significantly better at scoring points out of the box than, than other races are in a way that like, you know, the guys that are disadvantaged, the races, the factions that are disadvantaged at scoring points, they'll never be able to make up that kind of like performance gap. The only way that they win is if the rest of the table recognizes the imbalance between the two and decides to take corrective action in-game against one whilst not really taking corrective action against the other one. Put the same way, if you attacked Joel Narr. With the same frequency and intensity that you attacked, like Sardak Nor or another race that is not super powerful, then Jolnar will still win the game. Like, if you want to win as Sardak Nor, then you have to do everything right, and they have to, and the, the table has to recognize that Jolnar is ultimately the bigger threat, and then kind of like let you slide, at least until it's too late.
0: Yeah, yeah, Twilight Imperium 4 is a game that's, uh, I like to describe it as, uh, leveraging your strengths, uh, hedging your weaknesses. Um, It it is a game where everything is on the table to be bargained with, um, even your crappy abilities. So if you are playing as the faction whose sole ability is getting a plus one to their die, then you tell your nearest neighbor, I will go punch the person that you hate the most. I will likely win. It's not going to really get me anything. That's why I'm asking you to give me stuff. Uh, in doing so um and we've when this when this works when this really works, it excels the game above above and beyond uh any other um, you know massive uh, uh, conflict multiplayer conflict game that i've played and leave winning to the side really the best
1: plays the ones that are the most fun and memorable are the the one the players that like really get in. To trying to like negotiate and like figure figure out a creative solution to the game's problems if you're just playing the game to build up a a, an army a fleet and then go whomp somebody it's going to be a really tedious and boring exercise but if if you take the game the tools that the game gives you the game gives you a myriad tools to to solve its problems then
0: it's a lot it can be a lot of fun yeah, yeah, and I know that you know that doesn't sound satisfying to everyone, uh, and uh, I've argued with old uh, Tom over here before about how I don't like um, ambiguity in the rules. But one one thing I took to heart that you said before, you said that uh, a good game allows for some leeway in how you approach it. Twilight Imperium Four is a game that definitely demands some leeway in how you approach it. It, it demands that you and your that you get a good group. And your group crafts just a little bit of meta for approaching the game. Just a, a gentleman's agreement to play the game to the best of your ability, um and like not be a total asshole while doing so.
1: Well, Twilight Imperium also underscores the reason why ultimately it's impossible to like rule book your way out of all of these problems in a multiplayer game. You could have crystal clear rules That are absolutely on point and cross-referenced in such a way that they are easily accessible every single time that there is a problem or ambiguity or something. You can find a clear answer to whatever the disagreement is in the rules. But they also, the game only functions under the assumption that everyone is actually trying to win it Mm -hmm. and play to the best of their ability sometimes that's not the case um in twilight imperium 4 because it's such a long time investment it tends to be a lot more impactful when players just kind of like give up and sort of go off on these little tangent side quest things to get one over on the guy that screwed them or to just like do something that satisfies them but doesn't actually score any points or advance their agenda in winning the game
0: and that is a very hard thing to regulate Indeed, indeed, um, it is. It is a game that almost, almost soured me completely on the experience from the first time we played it, where we did have a scenario where two players colluded together and said, "Well, we can't, we can't possibly win, even though they they did have an honest chance of winning." So we're going to go off and fight everybody. We don't care about points. We're just going to fight everybody. Uh, I'm glad that we've had um, many uh, you know, a retribution game after that. Um, not, not a retribution. What is the word I'm looking for? Redemption, uh, Redemption, there we go. It was also a retribution. <laughs> I, I hit them a couple times. Yes, we had a redemption game after that. Uh, Twilight Imperium is my favorite game that I enjoy playing once every three or four months. You have a, also,
1: in terms of like regulating things, it's interesting in the fact that there is such a cottage industry of house rules that are emerging, even though the game is just a year old. House rules that are encouraged by at least one of the game's designers one of them actually said that they kept the rules for designing the galaxy Uh, people who play twilight imperium are already aware of the fact that the galaxy is pretty much random every time you create it and it's it's created through a very like thinly written process Uh, in the rules the reason why it's not written out in extreme detail is that the designer said we know everybody pretty much just comes up with their own method so we provided a basic bare-bones set of rules and kind of expect you all to tinker with it which is something honestly we've tried doing in our own games with very little success
0: yeah yeah uh crafting Crafting the galaxy in sort of a co-op way, it's changing the, seating order. It's the worst eh. part of the game is when you start. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it has led to. Uh, I'll be interested I'll be interested in seeing um, how one player we know will approach it the next time we play. Uh, he was. He's, he's not gonna want to sit next to me. Yeah, he was. Uh, so there's this one player who has um, always been very vocal about um, building the board blind. And then uh, choosing our drafting our seating order uh, because he feels that certain seats are weaker than others. Again, well, he's correct. He, some he, some he, starting he's, positions he, he positions He is are, correct, yeah. but that is why Twilight Imperium is a game all about the players regulating the experience. Right. So, um, so if you know, but I mean, the expectation there would be that if
1: one person knew that guy's got a weak start. I have two choices. I can either, like, take advantage of his weak start to pursue him, or I can, like, go after this other person who's a much stronger threat. Justin, which way is that person going to go? What's the psychology? Well, the the
0: psychology is to take advantage, Tom. The psychology is to take advantage, Justin. How, however, in, uh, in this situation, the player who started in the weaker position uh, decided to attack the stronger player. <laughs> <laughs> resulting in the only player elimination we have seen out of uh, half a dozen plays or so. I do it again. You do it again. We thought we thought he hated us. We thought he'd never come back. We thought he'd uh he'd slander us on the uh, on the meetup uh postings, but um But Kyle, if you're listening buddy, uh really looking forward to the next game. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, twilight period 4, it, that, I mean that was the kind of action that's the kind of move when you get eliminated from an eight-hour game and we were playing six players too those are the stories that people tell to warn you off from this game but well it, he also well, i mean we we caught him
1: loose at like five thirty. like we gave him three hours of his life back
0: oh yeah we released we unchained the shackles like oh man uh mm-hmm. if only we could all be so lucky but um yeah twilight imperium 4 uh the kind of game that That really only works well with uh, with a a well regulated group, Uh, but when it when it works well, uh, there is it's unparalleled. uh, This is uh, yeah.
1: It's unfortunately like a a way that another way to describe the process that we're going here is unfortunately maybe like curating your friends, like not
0: maybe in a way that you'd never see them again, but at least at least curating your group. Um, I feel we have we have a well. Well curated group. Well, um, no, I, want... I mean,
1: like, for a particular table, like, there are some people that I'd never invite to come play Root because
0: I know they'd hate it and I'd hate playing ah, with them. Ah, yeah, okay, all right, I see what you I, I know one player. <laughs> I don't want to. Like, but it's that.
1: the same for Twilight Imperium. It's the same for for Mari Nostrum Empires. It's the same for, for Twilight Struggle or anything. It's just not, you, you know, you shouldn't expect everybody to actually, like, enjoy all of these games, especially not the, yeah, the but... ones that are, like, more. Complex. yes
0: yes i think um i think one of the biggest hurdles that we as board gamers need to get over uh the, the first hurdle is that you don't need everybody <laughs> at a gathering to play one game uh we we have gotten over that quite nicely yeah it, S- is, ser- yeah. it is okay to split up into yeah. different games yeah seriously guys this isn't dungeons and dragons split up the party yeah. um but the second hurdle is wanting to have everyone like your games Um, And Tom, I I have to give you all the props in the world uh, for creating a gathering where, as much as we hate Terraforming Mars, we have no problem with people wanting to sit down and play Terraforming Mars. Well, even though you and I don't enjoy Terraforming Mars
1: very much, and personally, I can take it or leave it, you never want to play it ever again. No, thank you. But there is nothing wrong with people enjoying Terraforming Mars and and playing it, even if they come over to my house to play it without me. I'm perfectly okay with that. Uh, You know, it's, it's more, you know, when I have people over at my house, it's more about a sense of fellowship and that we're all here to enjoy games together. But there's no point in taking that and turning it into we must all enjoy the same game together at
0: once. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like it, is,
1: it is okay to, to enjoy multiple, mm-hmm. multiple different games and for everybody to come over and, and play the game that they would like to play the most.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, those are the things that I feel uh, plague board gamers the most. Uh, anyway, Tom, uh, we are running up close on time. Um, I wanted to run by you a couple of uh, prospects for, for future segments. Uh, we get together to play Gloomhaven usually about uh, once every two weeks. Um, and you know I haven't heard a podcast that's like that really discusses Gloomhaven by Ooh, itself. Okay. So I I kind of want to do like well that could be I mean how are we going to handle spoilers? Oh this, this it's a spoiler podcast. I kind of want to do like a travel log. Oh uh, okay. I I want I want to do like I want to do one podcast where we just we just talk about how great Gloomhaven is uh, overall. And then after that we just like Every every uh, two weeks, we talk about the adventures we had, uh, mm-hmm. our characters growing, how much we hate oozes, and uh, we're not the only ones who hate oozes. I know. I, I I'm glad that everyone else hates oozes. Yeah. Um, and of course, at some point, I uh, want to roll these uh, Spiel de Yaras games out. Maybe you know, maybe do a little retrospective on those. Um, I do want to go in order because, uh, uh, as I said, King Domino. In the grand scheme of things, is kind of an outlier. The Spiel the Jahres games are just a little bit more robust.
1: Well, it's interesting in that King Domino and uh, Azul are coming off back-to-back wins, isn't it? Because those are very similar games when you think about it. Yeah, that your turn order and uh, turn order and pattern are very important in both of those games, mm-hmm. and very, very different from from many of the other games that have won that award. There's nothing really like I mean you know code names. Spieldiaris. Yeah, yeah, definitely deserves it, but like very, very different from azul mm-hmm. well very different types of people will will
0: approach that game first. Yeah, eventually we'll have to uh track down a copy of uh Turn and Taxis that we sold off uh three three months ago.
1: I think that if we uh if we wait for Petty Arcade unplugged though we could just play it out of the library. Yeah, sure. Actually sure. you should like wait and just do like the uh they've probably got like an S D J from like every
0: single year at the Petty Arcade library. You might be able to knock off quite a few. Yeah, I, I would not be surprised. Uh well, Tom, in closing, do you have uh you have anything to say? Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. You have been listening to Table Topics Podcast. Visit us on Facebook. Bye. You have been listening to Table Topics by Justin Brown and Thomas Lyles. New episodes every Wednesday. You can reach us at tabletopicspodcast at gmail.com or on our Facebook page at TableTopicsPodcast.